I think it's really important to consider the devastating impact of rootlessness, of trauma, of abuse, and what happens when people kind of embody the, the great adventure and, and the mythological dream of being this wild wanderer and just finding a better home somewhere. And in doing that, leaving behind everyone and everything, including culture, language, friends, family. Hello, friends. Welcome to the Medicine Stories podcast, where we are remembering what it is to be human upon the earth through interviews with herbalists, story keepers, ancestral listeners, consciousness explorers, earth dreamers, and other wise folk with the guiding principles that story is medicine, magic is real, and healing is open-ended and endless. Today is episode 37. I'm your host, Amber Magnolia Hill, and I'm interviewing Janelle Hardy. Janelle has a podcast called the Personal Myth Makers Podcast that I think you'll probably like, and I was interviewed on it the day before I interviewed her for this show, um, and we're releasing them at the same time. So if you're listening to this show, then that one's out as well. And I think you might like it, not just my interview, but so many good ones. Janelle asks the same four questions of each guest. And we talk about those four questions in this interview. So I'm not going to say them here, but it's pretty deep, pretty juicy, pretty personal. um, And just, yeah, really revelatory and beautiful conversations that come out of those four questions. So I'll have a link to that in the show notes, of course, or you can look for the Personal Mythmakers podcast, which until now was called the Wild Elixir podcast. So there might be some name confusion or you'll need to look for one or the other, but I know at least in iTunes and the Apple Podcasts app, it's Personal Mythmakers now. Janelle and I talk a lot about names, uh, making peace with our names, the legacy of patriarchal naming changing names like you know when people change their names and then a lot of times people change their name back prehistoric kinship ties and pondering how our most ancient ancestors chose names we talk about the spectral visitations from the grandfather who died before janelle was born um, that she saw as a kid and rootlessness and what's lost when people set out on their own, you know, to live that hero's journey that Rebecca Altman talked about in the last episode. And they leave their land and their people behind. You know, we, we lose so much. And that overarching cultural narrative has dominated for so long and it has led to so much loss. We talk about language as a gateway to the ancestors and how our ancestors live in us, even when we can't claim their culture as our own. I talk about megalithic monuments and the transition from hunting and gathering to farming in Europe, and this idea of ancestral memory and how our ancestors remembered such vast amount of information. This is based on the book, The Memory Code by Lynn Kelly, and I will definitely have a link to that in the show notes as well. It's fascinating. Um, We talk about knowing whose land you're living on, the ancient tales that we're drawn to, and diving deep into embodiment and creativity, and the profound inner and outer journey of personal myth-making. 
And then we get into navigating the world as a highly sensitive person and or empath. Janelle said, I need a lot of self-care to be connected to my deep self. And I feel that too. I know a lot of my listeners do. It's come up on a few interviews already in the past. And Janelle educates me about biodynamic craniosacral therapy, which I thought sounded amazing, somatic experiencing, and other coping mechanisms slash self-care for the sensitive. And I really loved her perspective on chronic trauma responses and nervous system stuckness. Um, And then we close it out talking about the more ephemeral cultural transmissions like textiles, fiber arts, music, dance, cooking, etc. The Patreon gifts this month, there are two of them. The first is a PDF from Janelle called Self-Care and Energy Hygiene for empaths, introverts, highly sensitive people or HSPs and psychic slash intuitives. It's a three-page guide intended to help you feel less overwhelmed and more grounded and resilient with three steps. Step one, know your traits, strengths, and challenges. Step two, daily actions to wring out the psychic sponge. Step three, get support in your healing plus more resources. So that's at the $2 level for people who support the show. Um, For each episode, there's some sort of offering, usually from my guests, sometimes from me, to complement what was talked about on the show. And I try, I work really hard to make it valuable for your two bucks a month. It's, uh, It's so helpful that makes the podcast happen. And then the second offering is free from Janelle. It's an online workshop called Outline Your Memoir. Um, So you can find the link to that as well for free for everyone who's listening. You don't have to be a supporter on Patreon, as well as download that PDF if you are a supporter at patreon.com slash medicine stories. Yeah, I want to write my memoir. I want to write books. Um, It looks really good. It's like a live online workshop. So you sign up for a time a predetermined time and you'll meet Janelle and everyone else there online and outline it. I really appreciate talking about ancestral languages. It's something I'm thinking more and more about lately. You know, I did Spanish in high school and just didn't really like it. Um, It was hard, you know, it was hard. Um, Middle school and high school. So four years of it. And it's actually amazing how much I remember Um, but I guess I just never really felt in resonance with it, even though of course everyone around me is telling me it's so important to know it. And I guess I am glad I have the basics, although I don't know if I've ever actually used it. Um, not really enough to converse with anyone, but lately I've started to learn French, which I've talked about before. My uh, maternal grandmother, Mime, who's still living at 97, spoke French as a child and her parents were French Canadian. And I've had a lot of fun um, tracing those lines back to France. And it's, it's just, you know, it's an important thing to do as we age. I'm going to be 38 in a couple weeks. I know I'm not old, but I'm definitely aging and feeling it. And learning a language is such a neat and meaningful way for me as an ancestral language to 
keep my mind sharp and to um, keep growing and trying new things and trying things that I never thought I would do. Uh, so I've really enjoyed that. And I've also been learning more about Manx, which is the language from the Isle of Man. I'm not, I don't know if I'm going to actually learn that language. Um, the Celtic Gaelic languages feel much harder for me than French. You know, I actually know quite a bit of Latin root words. I took one quarter of Latin in college because I'm crazy. Um, I just enjoyed the root words so much that so I thought I might enjoy that, but I didn't really. And with my background in Spanish and then, you know, having this language be so close to me in time, I kind of understand French on a level that I definitely don't understand these Celtic Gaelic languages as a total outsider to both of them still. But I've been learning about Manx, which almost died out in the last century. And there's a big revival now, as is happening with so many languages around the world. I just think it's really neat to watch ancestral languages be salvaged, you know, these languages that are holding on for dear life to see people come in and recognize the importance of them and start learning them, start teaching them. I just think it's really gives me hope for humanity. And I uh, just wanted to share that little bit about what I've been doing and my experience with that to encourage anyone what I there's <laughs> it's such a powerful way to connect with your ancestry. Um, as I have said many times before, some wisdom that came down to me from Martine Practel through a friend is, if you want to get to know your ancestors, look below the level of empire. Don't read the history books. Don't read about the men and the kings and the wars. I mean, that's there too. But really, you want to look at the folk culture and a lot of things that we think of as being in the women's sphere, um, cooking, fairy tales, songs, uh, herbal remedies, dances, you know, folk culture. And language is a big part of that. And different languages completely change the way the speaker thinks about the world and perceives the world. You know, I was listening to... Lila June, who's going to be on this show soon, um, speaking to Ayana Young on the For the Wild podcast. I'll link to that too. And she was talking about her language. She's of Diné descent through her mother line and how there aren't curse words and there aren't insults. And if you're speaking that language, then there's a sense of the sacred all around you, all around the people having the conversation. Um, that's just, that's so not English, you know, and to think what it would be like to grow up speaking a language like that. So it's just an important way to get more deeply rooted into an ancestral line if that interests you and to keep your brain sharp. Um, I also wanted to give a little book recommendation here. Janelle talks a bit about the First Nations peoples of Canada and America as well. And, you know, all the issues that we're all having such good conversations about right now, cultural appropriation and colonization and genocide and, again, knowing whose land you're on. Um, I've been reading this book called Ancient Spirit Rising by Peggy Ayers. And I don't have it in front of me right now, but it's really about all those things I just named. And I think a lot of people, it's about reclaiming for white folks, our indigenous European knowledge so that we can stop looking so much to the indigenous knowledge of people from the Americas. Um, and it's very, 
you know, she's a good critical thinker. She quotes a lot of different people. It's almost like just a compilation of thoughts coming from Native American First Nations communities just as much as it's her thoughts. Um, And I think especially for people who might be confused about these issues, you know, might feel like, what exactly are people talking about here? And what's right? And what's wrong? Um, It's just a good book. It's pretty dense. It's thick, but it's worth it. And as a almost 100% European ancestor person, you know, it's just something that I've talked a lot about on the show is reminding people that they have indigenous wisdom in their lines as well. We don't have to go back very far at all in time, a few thousand years to find our ancestors who were of the land, which is what indigenous means. Uh, Again, that's Ancient Spirit Rising by Peggy Ayers. And um, Janelle has a little cough in this podcast, so I just want to tell you that she only coughs a couple times. But um, speaking of coughs, just an article showed up on Facebook yesterday about studies about elderberries. And so I was reading it and it just, it's a pretty short article, but it talks about a few different studies, including one from 2004 and one from 2009 that both showed that elderberry can cut the duration of a flu in half and in many cases eliminate symptoms within 48 hours. And a more recent study from 2016 shows that elderberry works just as well on colds, which makes sense because colds and flus are both viral infections, and elderberry has a specific effect against viruses. It's a true antiviral. Um, The 2004 study, which was published in the Journal of International Medical Research, showed that when elderberry extract is used within 48 hours of the onset of the influenza A or B virus, it shortens the duration of flu symptoms by an average of four days. Uh, I have certainly found this to be the case for myself and uh, my customers who who have bought our extra potent elderberry elixir. I just hear from people all the time telling me how much quicker they got better or how they started to feel a colder flu coming on and just started hitting the bottle and it didn't come. Um, So you can find our medicine if you would like, or I also have a video that I shot last year. I think it's almost an hour long and that's on my blog. It's called an herbalist's perspective on cold and flu. And I just talk a lot about everything I've learned in my years as an herbalist and learning from other teachers about the cold and flu, including like myths that a lot of people tend to believe about the cold and flu, such as ways people tend to misuse um, three really common cold and flu herbs, ginger, echinacea, and citrus. Those all have really specific uses and ways they are most active and potent, and we kind of um, use them wrong in general. I also talk about the nature of viral life forms and how plants are more effective at treating infectious diseases than technological medicine, um, which is, you know, failing on a massive scale, like increasing antibiotic resistance, the high failure rates of the flu vaccine, et cetera. And meanwhile, plants have been evolving antimicrobial compounds for millennia to fight off the same infections that affect humans. Uh, Why you should always stay home when you're sick, because you're basically a weaponized human when you have a viral infection, and other ways to prevent the spread of viral infections. What you should eat when you're sick, why you should never, ever, 
almost never, like 99% of the time, never suppress a fever because fevers have important infection fighting purposes and suppressing them is counterproductive to getting better. How antibiotics do not treat viral infections and will not treat a cold or flu, but that won't stop the doctor from writing you a prescription because they know that's what you want. Uh, The difference between immune-boosting compounds and antiviral or antibacterial compounds, because they're different, but we tend to sort of conflate them, confuse them, and um, it's just helpful to know the difference. Why we crave sugar at the onset of illness, and the three things I always have on hand in case someone in my family gets sick, and why taking medicine at the very beginning of an illness is vital. So you can find that and our extra potent elderberry elixir, if you so choose, at my website, mythicmedicine.love. That video is at the blog, and the medicine is in the shop. So thanks for listening. I hope you love this interview. I really loved it. This is the kind of stuff I want to be talking about here. And let's get into it now. Here I am talking to Janelle Hardy. Hi, Janelle. Welcome to Medicine Stories. Hi, Amber. I'm so happy to be here having about to have this conversation with you. Yeah, we had a really nice conversation yesterday when I was on your podcast. So this mm-hmm. will be um, my first time doing this kind of um, two-way interview thing. And it'll be, I think it'll be fun for people to listen to both of them. And um, I yeah. wanted to start out by asking you how you feel about your name. What, what is your yeah, relationship name. with your name? <laughs> you, you had mentioned um, your last name. And how you thought about changing it to your oh, right, okay. <laughs> mom's maiden name. And I thought that was a really cool. I liked what you had to say about that. So my last name, you mean? Yeah, um, unless you have anything to say about your first name or other names. I have a funny story about my first name too, but I'll start with my last name. Um, so what's really interesting to note is that my parents did not give me or my siblings middle names. And they had a very specific reason for it. They were quite young when they had me. I'm the first of four. They were 18 and 21. And they decided they wouldn't give us middle names because then we would be able to choose our own middle name. And so that was always a really exciting thrill growing up, this daydreaming of, ooh, what's my middle name going to (laughs) be? And I had um, friends growing up who their the name they went by turned out to be their middle name, which I found really intriguing. So they weren't called by their first name, but by their more secret special middle name. And I didn't have that. So I went through a phase of reading fantasy sci-fi books and um, uh, like the super romantic girly names for sure. But I eventually settled on and I never made it legal because of course that costs money and, and takes paperwork. But I eventually settled on my mom's maiden name, McKinnon, um, because I didn't really like the idea of just being a hardy. And, and I, I never liked this um, cultural construction of uh, patriarchy, basically, of the woman changing her last name when she gets married, almost being erased in a sense, and the man not being expected to change anything at all. Um, and I also didn't like this, the way it felt to me of a, um, not honoring the mother line. 
So I settled on that and I thought, ooh, I want to be Janelle McKinnon Hardy. And then, um, of course, uh, digging a little deeper, I realized that McKinnon is actually my mother's father's last name, which was his father's last name, which was his father's last name. And so by only following the male name, um, all the female lines are totally erased. So that's that's the complicated feeling of my last name of Hardy. Um, and I've kept my last name and I gave my daughter my last name. Um, and I most likely will not be changing it. But I, I think often about how on earth would it even be possible to honor all ancestral lines? Because the branches get so thick and tangled not very far back along those lines that um, it's simply not possible to have a thousand hyphenated names. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, yeah, those are some of my initial thoughts about it. Well, it's so true. You know, if you follow your father line back, say seven generations, they're all going to have the same last name. If you follow your pure mother line, you're going to get seven different last names. And, yeah. and then, yeah, if you go, you know, if you're hopping genders, it's, yeah, it gets so yeah. complex. And, and then all the other lines with yeah. uh, following the father line, you still, all those other lines get missed out too, right? It's complex. We come from such complex roots. <laughs> we do. And when people feel maybe shame or just not in resonance with their ancestors, I always remind them like you're, you're focusing on one line or maybe even one or two people and their bad behavior. Mm -hmm. You come from so many people. I just, it's easy to forget that. And I think I've said this a thousand times before on this show, every generation you go back, you double the amount of ancestors you have. So Mm -hmm. it's literally an exponential growth for many, many generations. And it's so rich. Um, So like what got you, first of all, that's really cool that your parents did that. I love that. I've never Mm -hmm. heard of anyone doing that. Um, Did your siblings also like enjoy the process of getting to come up with their own middle names and did everyone like settle on one or (laughs) did they change over time? Did anyone make it legal? No one made it legal. I don't, um, you know, we haven't talked about it in a long time, but I remember as a kid, um, scheming and dreaming with my siblings what would yours be and it was it was an exciting idea I think that was the gift that my parents gave by not giving middle names was the sense of possibility um to claim one for ourselves that's so cool I just I love it it makes me think um of my middle name which is Marie and I use Magnolia as any listener will probably already know. Um, And I talk about why in the very first episode of this podcast, the short little 10 minute intro, I talked about where Magnolia came from and why I use it. And growing up, Marie just seemed like the most boring middle name in the world. And I'm like five of my good friends had that middle name too. I just felt like it was the standard that like moms in the eighties chose for their kids, for their daughters or something. But then I've realized, especially actually just in the last few years, that that's my mom's middle name. 
it's the first name of my grandmother, great-great-grandmother, and great-great-great-grandmother, um, because they're all French. And then going back mm. to in that family tree as it branches into different places, it's just like, you know, all the women are named Marie. <laughs> and I think, you know, maybe most, most women were, especially, um, you know, people who were associated with the Catholic Church in Europe mm-hmm. for thousands of years. Um, and so when my first daughter was born 12 years ago, I was like, hell no, am I giving her this middle name? She's getting something special and different and unique and meaningful. And then when my littlest was born two years ago, I was like, oh, she's getting Marie. Like, I need to make her <laughs> a part of this lineage. Mm-hmm. So you're, you um, brought up special unique names. And that's kind of the story about my first name. So... Um, Janelle, I grew up knowing no other Janelles and my three other siblings also didn't have any, anyone in their classes or community with their names. Their names are Titus, Tess and Lyman. And my parents have great stories for those three about how they found their names from big works of literature. And my name, um, one day I asked my mom, well, how do you find my name? What's my story? (laughs) She said, she was in high school when she was pregnant with me, uh, and she said, oh, I was reading a magazine a couple weeks before you were born, and I saw the name, and I just really liked it. What <laughs> magazine was it, Mom? I don't remember. <laughs> <laughs> but um, the funny thing is, I became very attached to, to not having to share my name, and now I'm just encountering Janelle's everywhere, and I have a, have to admit, I have a hard time. Uh, interacting with other Janelles Mm -hmm. and accepting that they have my name Mm -hmm. (laughs) except for Janelle Monet because she's so amazing Mm -hmm. I'm I'm all right with sharing my name with Janelle Monet but everyone else I get a little grumpy around and it's not their fault (laughs) dude I understand I have always felt that I remember when I first in elementary school there was another Amber a year younger than me and I was like what the fuck You know, I just (laughs) really didn't like it. And I still kind of feel the same way. I mean, every now and then there's one I like, but mostly I'm like, "Mm -mm, no, why? (laughs) Come on. (laughs) I know. It's so egotistical, but there it is. (laughs) Well, so, so for me, that made me from a very young age want to give my kids totally unique names. And I wonder, you know, now there's this trend the last 10 20 years of parents naming their kids ridiculous things (laughs) you can find some very funny lists online um, of the things that kids get named nowadays but I wonder if it is like people in our generation being like "Mm okay we're all sharing the same names here and like why don't we try something different yeah yeah and though I mean the one thing that bothers me a little or is becoming more of an issue is um uh, more more around cultural appropriation and especially white people naming their kids very um, cultural names from unrelated cultures. And I, I feel like that's uh, a small bit of unfairness to the child, actually. Um, and when I was pregnant, I had some names because I lived in Russia and Japan for a while and I had, I thought I was having a boy, but which it didn't happen, but I had a Russian name and a and a Japanese name and um and I'm really glad I didn't end up doing that because 
what I've noticed with kids that are named in that way um, is that there's always a double take and then people say, uh, why? Why are you named that way? Oh, because my mom visited that country and really liked it, but I've never been and I don't know anyone from that culture. And um, more so when they're very classically traditional names, it's a tough one. So I, I nearly fell into that and I'm, I'm glad I didn't. But uh, I've noticed also people changing their names back from names they've changed to and, and uh, writing about that online, which I also appreciate of, you know, writing about how meaningful the name was and then realizing it's not their name to take after all. These are adults renaming themselves and then naming themselves back to something more specific to their own lineage and or back to their given names. Yeah. Yeah, it, that, that's one of the reasons that I sometimes ask about names on this show. It's one of the main thematic elements that I've held in mind since the beginning is because um, how personally meaningful names are to us, even even when they're not meaningful, then that's meaningful that it's not meaningful, you know? And, mm-hmm. um, and then I've noticed the same thing, like people who change their names very often change it back. Um, oh, that's interesting. Yeah. I mean, I actually did that when I was 25, I was working at a natural health food store and there were two other Ambers and it just felt too small. So I started going by Mm. Magnolia, which was something Mm. my dad had always called me, um, growing up. And when I was in the womb, he called me Magnolia and I went by that for a while. And then I birthed my first child and named her Mycelia. And just, there's something about that, that I was like, okay, she has her name now. And I actually want to go back to my name now like I'm Mm. I'm Amber and that's when I got really comfortable with Amber and even if other people have it it is such a meaningful name for me um and then I started using Magnolia as the second name because there are a lot of Amber Hills online already like a lot (laughs) um but now I'm really at a point where I'm like I I don't know if I want to be using Magnolia anymore. It's kind of a mouthful. <laughs> like it's a lot to type out in my freaking email address every time I'm filling something in online. And um, for like a year now, at least, I've been wondering if I should drop that middle name or not. Go back to oh. myself. <laughs> drop Magnolia. Yeah. Oh, I like it. Yeah, <laughs> but I like it's, it your too. it's your name. It's your name. It all flows, and I like the way it, it flows sounds. really beautiful. Yeah, um, and I wonder, you know, if we could just like shoot back to prehistory and be a fly on the wall during the Paleolithic, you know, pre-agriculture, um, pre-settled village life, pre-writing and record keeping. I wonder if names were being repeated within lineages and within clans or if people were just doing totally unique names for each person because that's kind of like each person's unique, so why wouldn't you? Like I wonder what the deepest human impulse towards naming is when you sort of remove um, like writing and Mm. the larger culture from it. Mm -hmm. And access to all the information we can now just grab off the internet by thinking the the question, right? Excuse me. I, I wonder too, um, it could, could go either way. And these little cultural groups would have been between 50 and 200 people, usually maximum. 
with maybe larger gatherings a couple times a year. So, yeah, that's the curious one. Yeah, and were those people like fighting over, you know, we're going to name them after my clan. No, we're going to name them after my clan. <laughs> like kin, parents kin. trying to do today. Yeah, well, so pre-literacy especially, kinship um, has always been the organizing factor of cultures. And one of the ways that kinship is organized is through naming, right? Naming to uh, indicate who you belong to. And we still do that with our surnames, right? Our surnames um, indicate that our culture prioritizes the male line, the male's male, the, the male's father's line, not just the male line, right? But the father's 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 line. And that's reflected in, in how we do our surnames in North America and English speaking countries for sure. So even though we, we think we're kind of beyond that sometimes or that we've improved or evolved, I, we're still, it's still how we organize the way we understand things. So that would be absolutely no different. And in an oral tradition and culture, um, there'd also be the story keepers of the groups and the, um, the lineage keepers who have all that knowledge and memorized. And, uh, but one of the easiest ways to know how to sort people and how to know who you can, um, partner up with in smaller communities was a really big deal, right? That you're not um, getting partnered with a relative or the, the too close a degree of a relative is by being able to sort through naming and clan systems. Right. Have you read uh, The Memory Code by Lynn Kelly? Uh, nope. It is unbelievable. I'm reading it right now. And I mean, I read so many books a year. And I would say this is like the most important book that I've read this year, um, or last year, <laughs> we're just a few days into 2019 right now in the last year. Um, I'm going to ask her to be on the show. And I think she'll say yes, because it seems like she does podcasts. But it's about how ancient humans memorized such large amounts of information using memory devices like she mm -hmm. basically figured out that stonehenge is a memory device um, oh interesting it's so in easter island and um so many like worldwide the nazca lines um these handheld devices from africa called lucasas and all sorts of stuff all it's just it's like you know pan global these um mm -hmm. archaeological artifacts that we found some monolithic, some again handheld, that were memory devices, ways to code memory, because there was a lot to know to survive purely off the earth for thousands and thousands of generations. And that knowledge had to be handed down in very specific ways and to only a few initiates. Um, one mm -hmm. thing that has really struck me from this book is that, you know, we think of um, hunter-gatherer cultures as being egalitarian. Uh, materially, everything is shared, but her point is like knowledge was absolutely not egalitarian. There's very much a hierarchy of who had what knowledge because you can't mess this stuff up or your clan mm -hmm. doesn't survive. Um, so anyway, I was just thinking about when you were talking because one of the things she really talks about is the memorization of kinship ties and of the ancestors and who is related to who and how we are related to those people are those people 
for that mm-hmm. reason, for, you know, non intermarriage of relatives. And um, it's so fascinating. And she does do a big um, emphasis on the monolithic structures of the British Isles. And I know that um, you have ancestry in that area, too. So I wanted to ask you mm-hmm. about that. Like, what has your understanding how is your understanding of your ancestry unfolded in your life was it part of your childhood or something you've discovered later and like how do you engage with that that's such a big question it is a big question (laughs) you can go anywhere you want with it okay so um i i didn't grow up with a lot of understanding about who and where i came from um, my my parents met in the far north of Canada in Whitehorse in the Yukon Territory for context for non-Canadian listeners that's above British Columbia and beside Alaska and they met because uh, their parents came up to the Yukon so um, my mom's parents were from eastern Canada so I, I did know that my mother's father who was unfortunately named Columbus McKinnon, <laughs> came from Cape Breton um, in Nova Scotia. Cape Breton, the island of Cape Breton is very known um, as a stronghold of Scottish Celtic culture. So my understanding of my mom's dad was uh, that he played fiddle by ear, which was very common with um, people of Scottish descent, and that Gaelic was his first language. Um, Those are the things I knew. He died when my mom was 12, so I never knew him, except that um, he would show up as a spirit and play the fiddle to me. And so I didn't know that he died before I was born because all I knew was that fairly regularly he'd come and play the fiddle, what I thought was to everyone, but I think he just would show up to me. and Was this like in waking life? Um, as a kid, yeah, not in my dreams. Uh-huh. I, I vividly remember this. And um, and I grew up in the house that he built that my mom grew up in, um, wow. which, was a sh- which was a shack. When So just to not get romantic, my, my mother's father was a terrible alcoholic, and I don't think he was much of a provider or a healthy father. Um, but he showed up in this kind way as a spirit to me. So I just thought he came and visited fairly regularly until I asked my mom why he stopped coming and she started quizzing me about what was he wearing, where was he, where was he in the house, what was he doing, and you know, I described all those things and, and that's what he would do when he was a little more functional and sober. Um, so my mom's mom uh, grew up in Quebec and Ontario, and she ended up in Dawson City in the Yukon at the same time as my grandfather. They met, had their first baby, then moved to Whitehorse in the Yukon and had the rest of their kids. So they, uh, I mean, I'm kind of taking my time telling this story because I think it's really important to um, consider the devastating impact of rootlessness, um, of uh, trauma, of abuse, and what happens when uh, people kind of embody the the great adventure and and the mythological dream of being this wild wanderer and just finding a better home somewhere 
And in doing that, leaving behind everyone and everything, including culture, language, um, friends, family, not that, uh, from what I've heard, their family was all that great. You know, sometimes there's reasons for leaving, but the leaving and the, the running from, the avoiding, uh, translates to a lack of passing down of cultural knowledge, of stories, of identity. And so this is what happened. They showed up and they had a bunch of kids isolated from anyone else that might be healthy or functional enough to have um, guided and nurtured and protected and taught my mom and her siblings where they came from and who and what they were. Um, my father lived in BC and Alberta until he was around seven or eight years old. Um, my grandparents had split up. My other grandfather was also an alcoholic. And my grandma uh, at one point decided to try to make it work um, and took her five children and went up to the Yukon where my grandfather was. And of course, it didn't work the way he was promising her. But women in those days were really stuck, right? They couldn't, if they weren't educated and how, how would it be possible to feed uh, five children by yourself if, if you're just making minimum wage? It's very difficult. So also, my, <laughs> it's very difficult when your husband is an alcoholic who doesn't really work. Um, so, and the big other difficulty is it, it was such a stigma and taboo to divorce or leave that man, right? And this isn't that long ago. These are my grandmas in the... 1960s and 19, yeah, 1960s, 1970s. So, so they also landed in the Yukon, which is an amazing place. I love, I love where I come from. But they also landed up there with no extended family, uh, no friends, no support, um, and living in poverty. And so, again, this kind of erasure of um, what a community offers, because parents. And a nuclear family cannot actually raise children to know who and what they are. That's a community effort that's required. So, so all of that to say, um, I grew up with a lot of questions because my parents didn't have a lot of answers, but there were a few little snippets that really helped. And one was knowing that um, Grandpa Columbus was uh, of Scottish blood via Cape Breton, that he actually had a mother tongue that was different than English, that music was something that flowed like water in his family, even though he didn't pass those down to his children and thus his grandchildren. Um, Grandma Julia, my mom's mom, there were more questions. All I, um, I knew was she had a wonderful sister in the prairies who was, who was very different than her. And the other thing I knew that um, has been a lifelong curiosity for me, and definitely at least one of my siblings, maybe more, is little whispers, which we didn't really hear about until I was a teenager, little whispers that we had First Nations ancestry. Um, and this is a tricky one to talk about because a lot of people have this kind of oral history story in, in their family, and uh, many times it's not true. Um, and even when it is true, it can be problematic because um, although I have many different ancestries, I cannot say, I can't say I'm First Nations. I, I don't even know which First Nations culture from Eastern Canada um, that ancestor or those ancestors would be from because we don't know that much. We just had the whispers about it. And 
And I also can't say I'm Scottish because I'm not, but I have Scottish ancestry. I can't say I'm Welsh, although I have Welsh ancestry. I can't say I'm Orcadian um, or any of the other distant roots um, that my ancestors come from because that's not culturally what I am. But I can say that those are my ancestors. That's those are the cultures they came from that those are my roots, but I've been raised outside of that. And so with this first nations ancestry, um, the deep, the deeply compelling um, search for identity for me is the absence of acknowledgement, the shame that comes with whispers and secrets um, the questions about why are there whispers and secrets leading me into the rabbit hole of, well, how on earth was Canada formed that it was considered shameful? Oh, because it's a colonial power that stole land from um, the indigenous peoples here. And, um, and often it was safer to uh, marry white, to pass as white until essentially you become white and deny your heritage because of racism and, and racist shame. Um, other, other alternatives, you know, I've just thought a lot about this, like how is it that we likely have a distant First Nations ancestor, but it's only whispered about and no one knows a lot. Um, likely um, one or more of those ancestors was in the residential school and had their language and culture stripped from them aggressively and violently by the government and the church, um, or possibly, <clears throat> uh, possibly, you know, there's so many possibilities, but the, the truth of it is that the stories have been only passed down as whispers and something to wonder about rather than in contrast the deep pride that my mom's family takes in having Scottish blood, where it's talked about loudly and um, in really overly mythologized terms. Uh, those all raise so many questions, right? Like why so much pride about this one side and why all the whispers about this other uh, line of ancestors? And it's actually really shaped most of my life to try to understand how it is that colonialism is so destructive, how it is that this idea of whiteness and superiority is so damaging. Um, and on the other hand, I'm very careful not to claim that I'm First Nations because I'm not. I appear white. I am basically white. Um, and it's a deep insult to my friends who are First Nations or are mixed race First Nations and actually live the reality of appearing that way and living in a racist uh, system in Canada. Uh, so, so that was a bit of a tangent, but the way I approach my ancestral um, research is to be really careful not to claim that I am something that I'm not, but, but to also be proud to claim what I come from and who I come from and to make space to grieve all of the ways that um, there's so much loss. Almost, I, I, I do believe, I don't think I have much English ancestry or any, but I could be wrong. I haven't had the time and energy to really do the research, but um, every single ancestral line that I have 
does not come out of the English language. And yet that's the only language I speak fluently. There's so much cultural loss when we lose language. Um, language and grammatical structures shape how we think and how we interact. And language holds culture. It holds um, structures of understanding about ourselves in relation to other people and the natural world. And it shapes uh, how we make art, how we do everything. And uh, I, I was fortunate to be an exchange student in Japan and um, for a year, and I, and I was a full immersion. And right around the six-month point, finally, the language started clicking enough that I could communicate and, and be close to fluent. And I was absolutely blown away that my ability to think and understand co different concepts opened up. It was simply not possible without that language to understand certain concepts within that language. And so I think, um, yeah, there, I have a lot of sadness that some things haven't been passed down. So then, <laughs> that's just my mom's side. Then on my dad's side, um, uh, there was a, a couple little gifts. I don't actually know much about the Hardys because um, what also comes along with addiction and trauma, both of my grandfathers were uh, young soldiers in the war, and uh, I'm, I'm quite certain that a lot of their alcoholism came from that and when alcohol uh, or addictions show up, other abusive behaviors show up as well. Um, and so my parents were very focused on keeping us away from the drinking as children. Uh, and, uh, and I'm fortunate that they didn't become alcoholics or addicts themselves. But uh, I don't know much about my father's father's line because of that. Um, and then my my mother's, no, my father's mother's line, my grandma, she's 96, she's still alive. It's quite amazing uh, and healthy. And her, she comes from a long line of Welsh immigrants to the States who um, I believe her mom came to Canada. But there was about 200 years of uh, Welsh communities who were very proudly Welsh in the northern states somewhere before they came from Wales. And... Um, and my dad really loved his grandma with the Welsh roots and she was very into gardening. So that was the impression I got of that line was this tender hearted grandma of my dad's who he hung out with her in the garden. And then my grandma's dad was an immigrant to Canada from the Orkney Islands and apparently a really wonderful man. So that's what I know. <laughs> um. In, in the book, in the memory code, there's a whole chapter on the monuments in Orkney. Do you know what it's called? I can't think of the name. Um, I, oh, it was discovered I, somewhat recently in time, mm -hmm. you know, um, and she says that they think that Orkney might have been the first megalithic monument and memory space in all of the British Isles. Oh, and that really? all of the other ones, including Stonehenge and Newgrange and the better known ones were sort of modeled after that one. So I, I would love to go to the Orkney Islands someday because it's, from what I've researched, just the weirdest, most interesting kind of strange little island, collection of islands hub north of Scotland with all these different cultural mishmashes. And um, I did read a little bit about those 
monuments in there. I believe from the Neolithic, they're over 6,000 years old. And what's really cool about the Neolithic time period, um, I was taking a course with Sylvia Linstead called Witch Lines. And her premise um, with the research she's done is that uh, prior to the Indo-European uh, kind of invasion, migration into Europe, these Neolithic communities were exceptionally egalitarian and woman-honoring. And I'm so intrigued by the amazing cultural production and, and imagining a world where it's not a patriarchy and culture of domination, but a culture of cultures scattered across Europe of cooperation and honoring. Yeah, so I know that ties in somehow with these monuments. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, well, Lynn's uh, idea about the monuments in the British Isles, especially, and, and, the, and the timing, the archaeological proof of the timing is that they were built during during the transition from the Paleolithic to the Neolithic, during okay. the transition from hunter-gathering to farming. And so hunter-gatherer peoples, mm. um, like people might be familiar with the song lines of the Australian Aboriginals, it's the same thing that people all over the world were doing as they were hunting and gathering, as they embedded their memories into the landscape. So as they walked the landscape over and over throughout the years in their little migrations, um, they, mm. oh, that tree, that is our fifth ancestor. Let me tell you about, you know, his life and what we learned from him or whatever they were. And so when people settled, they were like, well, we don't have this vast landscape that we're walking anymore. We need to encode our memories locally. And so that's what the big stones did or the, um, you know, there were a lot of timber structures as well. And again, smaller handheld devices. So um, it was specifically that transition between hunting and gathering and farming that made, that forced this um, idea of figuring out a local memory space to keep their traditions alive. And then as farming took hold, the society became less materially egalitarian and people took on their specialized roles and then people became, mm -hmm. you know, kings or elevated in some way and other people became lesser and the knowledge wasn't needed anymore. They didn't need to know There's those things that they needed to know before, how to live off the land in a hunter-gatherer way or how to, why they needed to know how they were related to people and who their ancestors were. So um, all of that just fell away and the use of those monuments fell away as well. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I want to ask you about your podcast because I think it's so special and interesting and I'm thinking that maybe you can just share the four questions you ask and this is going to tie back into the First Nations peoples and um, why that's an important focus for you and like how you came up with this idea of I'm just going to ask the same four questions to every guest <laughs> and why those four questions are what what you wanted to ask. Okay so my podcast I've been doing it for two and a half years it's called the Wild Elixir Podcast, although depending when this um, interview goes public, I am probably going to change the name to the Personal Mythmakers Podcast. So I, um, the reason I created it is, uh, well, it's purely selfish, pure self-interest, and I think that's actually the best way to create a podcast, <laughs> because you're going to be having these conversations over and over and over again, but... The, I love podcasts, number one, 
And then number two, I'm often a bit isolated. I am a single mother with in the sense of being a completely solo parent. I don't co-parent. I don't, the other parent's not involved at all. And, um, and that's very labor intensive. So that's a bit isolating. She's 16 now. It's not quite as isolating as it was when she was younger. Um, I'm also self-employed and I, and I enjoy quiet and solitude. And so that can all combine to sometimes mean that I get more isolated than I actually want to be. Um, but, in the small town that I was living, I just wasn't getting the opportunity to have the kind of really deep conversations about the subjects that I was interested in, in the way that I wanted. And I really actually miss university for that. I loved being surrounded by kindred spirits and being able to just be a total nerd and go deep right away and not have to kind of ease the way into a conversation of depth. So... I was kind of casting about, like, how do I build community? How do I have conversations that are going to lift my spirit? And um, and knowing that I was probably going to move away from that town, um, how can I do this in a way that's sustainable so I don't just build a community in a town that I'm going to be leaving in a year and a half? So I decided I was going to start a podcast. I had no idea how or why, but I'm uh, good at figuring things out and... Um, so I thought, what am I always fascinated by? I'm always fascinated by creativity because I'm a creative person and I, the, the work that I do is um, with people is about creativity. I'm always fascinated about people's, about bodies, embodiment and people's relationship with their bodies, more specifically women. <clears throat> and um, and I have a background in hands-on healing work um, with structural integration. So uh, I've had a lot of experience witnessing people's struggles in their body and also my own. And so I thought, I just, I want to have like real conversations with women about um, how they feel in their bodies. And then my other question was, uh, well, I grew up loving fairy tales. I would absorb myself in fairy tales and mythology and, um, and I'd, read Clarissa Pinkola Estes's Women Who Run With the Wolves about two times by, by the time I decided to start my podcast. And I thought, wow, this is why I, you know, I knew there was something more to these um, stories collected by uh, Christian men and kind of sanitized, you know, like there's a reason why they've lasted so long. And they're, there's more depth than, than you see on the surface. And so it's like, ooh, I just want to talk about fairy tales. <laughs> And I bet people do too. So I actually started with those three questions in, in my first season. And, and, and the, and the questions I, are, what is your favorite oh, ancient tale? Yeah. What is your relationship to your body? And what is your and relationship your creativity? To, yeah. I know this because you asked me these questions Yes, yesterday. exactly. <laughs> so those three subjects turned into the three questions. Um, and then I thought, yeah, and I bet people would like to hear the conversations. So if I make it a podcast, it's like I'm offering a service. And if I make it a podcast, total strangers that I approach are much more likely to be willing to have the conversation <laughs> with me, <laughs> which is so true. It's amazing. Um, and and then in the process of figuring the like figuring it out as I started and going along. Um, I had actually wanted 
my kind of fourth curiosity at the beginning was around language and um, hoping that if I were interviewing a wide enough range of, of women that um, they would have other languages or mother tongues and I could get them to say something in that language. And then I realized that wasn't really working. And then I also thought, but something that almost no one talks about is actual place and space and also whose land are we really on, you know? And so, and, and especially in colonized countries, um, it's not our land. And most of the time it was stolen um, or it was, it was uh, uh, an agreement that was actually broken by the government where the two nations at some, in some cases came to an agreement and then the government um, murdered and trampled and stole anyways. It's really uh, appalling how um, colonial countries got established and that doesn't really get acknowledged. But I grew up in the north of Canada really understanding these things because uh, I think the Yukon was a little ahead in curriculum with making sure that uh, we had a grounding in some of this history. I wouldn't say it's perfect, but so then I thought, uh, and I also, you know, I want to hear about where people are. So I added the fourth question, which is whose traditional territory are you on? Which um, in Canada, generally you would say first nations or indigenous peoples in the, the States. I think it, um, usually it's native American, correct me if I'm wrong, Amber. Mm -hmm. um, and, and then my other interest was that, uh, um, of getting people to name the specific cultures that they're on because there's this strange belief in uh, one monolithic um, indigenous culture in all of the Americas which is so absolutely not true that's like saying that all of Europe speaks the same language and has the same cultural traditions it's just not true right there's so many such an exceptional diversity of languages and cultural um ways of life within the uh, world of First Nations people. And so, so I added that question because number one, I'm interested. Number two, it's a way to um, gently educate and spark some thought. Uh, and it adds to the richness of what I'm learning about the people that I interview as well. One of the fun things was actually interviewing a woman from Croatia. <laughs> And uh, she really dug in. I think she went over a thousand years back to find who were the actual, you know, the more indigenous people to the, to her homelands, which were different than her ancestral heritage. Mm -hmm. And I thought, this is fun. This wow. is really fascinating, right? Mm -hmm. Because it's true. There's nothing's ever static. Um, so those are the four questions. And... Uh, and, that, and the reason I ask the four identical questions is because the diversity of responses is exceptional. It's the, the, the framework of a structure actually opens up the conversation, whereas an open-ended conversation can sometimes um, kind of founder or, or fall flat. And people get really excited to have those four questions asked of them. Uh, and often uh, people that I've interviewed who are on podcasts a fair bit give feedback that it's such a breath of fresh air to not be asked the same old questions, right? Um, 
So, and then people that listen in take the time to give me feedback that they really love being able to hear these very deep, honest conversations. So, yeah, yeah. I think it's brilliant. Um, I was definitely like, yes, you know, when you, when you wrote me and explained it to me and then loved listening to the different interviews that you've done. And um, yeah, I mean, they're just super juicy questions and they're going to elicit really interesting answers and they're it's like really personal what is your relationship with mm-hmm. your body but that's obviously something that like dominates every moment of everyone's waking day mm-hmm. no matter how conscious we are yeah. of it so to to hear it from someone else it's just really vulnerable and really personal and I yeah. love it um mm-hmm. and I oh. I just want to add one thing. Yeah, it was originally uh, a podcast with interviews of women, but I uh, since expanded it to be women and non-binary people. Yeah, um, which is important to I. My wording was um, not inclusive enough, and and although I love men and their perspectives, the the podcast is not about men and their perspectives. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, but it, but I did need to uh, change the wording to make sure that my non-binary guests and friends um, felt the space was available to them too. Yeah, good. Um, and I, what is your, well, let's focus a little bit on the second question on your favorite ancient tale. And so you mentioned, um, you know, women who run with the wolves, which we talked about yesterday a little bit too, when I told my version of the selfie mm-hmm. tale, which by the way, after hearing more about like your ancestry and your interests, I'm like, so aligns with my, my version of the selkie tale, <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's funny how, um, I didn't realize how much overlap and interest there would be between us. And then how that specific story came through me when I was preparing for your podcast. Um, well, okay, I don't really have a specific question here, but you mentioned an interest in Jungian psychology that maybe you would have gone like more deeply into um, Jungian studies if you had time or if you could do it again, maybe. Mm. And then, so I want to hear about your um, your like course that you do, the personal myth-making and why it's important for people to engage in their own, what does that mean? What does personal myth-making mean and how do you guide people in that process? Oh. Uh. Oh, it's so fun and amazing. So um, my course is called The Art of Personal Myth-Making, and it's a five-month transformational memoir writing uh, course. And so it's designed, this was actually an accident in offering the course. My intention was all about personal transformation and healing uh, from the perspective of connection with body, creativity, and using cultural heritage, which is fairy tales, ancient tales. The amazing thing that happened when I started teaching it was that we were generating enough material for people to have the rough draft of their memoir written within that time frame, which is massive. So personal myth-making is my take on working with your life story and finding ways to... reframe the troublesome stories, um, kind of bump yourself out of the groove of the thought loops um, that you can get stuck in, that I can get stuck in. I'll just use a a quick example for myself. I have uh, a tedious thought loop that no one likes me. And 
it spins through my head all the time. And especially when I'm engaging with people and communities, um, if I tune in, there that little statement is humming away. They don't like you. They don't like you. They just want to get away from you. There's something repellent about you, blah, 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 blah. Um, I've done enough personal work on myself to understand that this isn't true, but it's still there. So ways that are really helpful to shift that narrative and that mythology uh, that I have is to actually write stories about my own life and get my head out of the way and let the stories bubble up. And the richness in that just blows my mind. Um, so, so my agenda is kind of, it's multi-layered. It always is, but what I love supporting people with is finding the exceptional beauty in their life. Um, discovering that even the tough, difficult stories in their life are also worthy of attention and reframing, um, but not in not in the mental intellectual way of reframing. I think that we've all been socialized and educated so intensely to analyze and overthink things um, and not allow the emotional feeling and the uh, body held experience to have its say as well. That that grip of the thinking can be so powerful that it's hard to escape. And so I use uh, a lot of body-based prompts and um, creative unblocking prompts to make space for the, the stories that contradict the personal myth, the uncomfortable or troublesome personal mythologies to actually come up. And through that process, we actually rewrite our personal myths into something that's tremendously beautiful. So I hope I've described that well. Well, it sounds amazing. Um, I, I just could not believe any more strongly in the power of personal writing, especially through like a mythic lens. Um, mm -hmm. And that's, you know, a, a focus of this podcast as well is just to kind of get into a mythic mindedness when we think about our own unfolding selves and our ancestors and what we're drawn to. Um, yeah. but, and speaking is one thing, but writing is just so powerful. It, it really is. And, um, I think what I'll add to my description is we've also been really socialized through self-help ideas and a certain way of understanding human development and growth. And again, I think this comes from this great forgetting of, um, the colonial mindset that, something better is always around the corner and we don't need to pay attention or honor where we come from and who we come from. And what happens is a lot of blame and shame gets laid on us as individuals by ourselves that uh, we've got challenges and troubles and problems that we can't seem to shift no matter how much we try. And therefore it's our own damn fault. When, when we expand our understanding of ourselves as being little beings coming out of ancestral lines and coming out of cultures that have been, that we've been cut off from coming out of languages. We've been cut off from coming out of stories that 
we've been cut off from, when we can uh, start to turn around and face that and start to mend and repair those breaks, what we get access to is the incredible cultural heritage of community, family, and culture. And this is why I think ancient stories are so important because they, they carry those lessons and um, stories that are medicine for us. And we're able to actually take a greater context and perspective and, and then look at uh, um, whatever beliefs it is that we think we're solely responsible for and go, oh, I didn't get the aunties and uncles and mentorship and stories of my family, good stories of my family history to actually be a foundation of strength. I didn't get the, the pride of true identity and belonging that would make me resilient enough to move through these challenges. Um, and my culture is saying that I'm the one with issues and I need to fix it all by myself. But actually, it's a symptom of an unhealthy culture. And if I can reconnect with my ancestral heritage and I can reconnect with these stories that are 6,000 years old <laughs> and, and I can start to kind of heal and mend those breaks um, everything else starts to fall into place and it's it takes the onus off of us to be the ultimate savior of ourselves right all alone like the lone uh, what's that mythology the the single cowboy on a horse roaming around needing no one, right? Give me a break. So. Yeah, I was going to say this earlier, but the podcast that is going to come out before this one, it hasn't come out at the time of this recording, but I'm going to release it next week um, with Rebecca Altman. She really breaks down the problems with the hero's journey, you know, this mm, mythic yeah. archetype that just dominates our society. And how oh, I'm excited. Yeah. I'm gonna listen. <laughs> yeah. I keep thinking you keep seeing things that remind me of what she said about that. Um, yeah. what you're saying also reminds me of what Daniel Four said when he was on episode 26 of this podcast that he has come to see that like no problem is an individual problem. They're all cultural, ancestral. We're we're so embedded in these larger things that in the West we've been taught to not see and to not perceive. And so we take mm -hmm. it all on ourselves. We blame ourselves yeah. for our problems. Yeah. I so fully agree with his wisdom. Um, so for the Patreon supporters of this show, you're going to be giving a, um, a little PDF about being a highly sensitive person and I thought we could talk a little bit, like how did, what I really like to ask people about fellow empaths, fellow HSPs, is how you came to realize that like your nervous system um, interacts with and processes the world different than other people's and how you've come to learn to care for yourself within that framework. <laughs> In the hard way. <laughs> yeah. I, of, uh, you know, first internalizing talk about like personal mythologies and cultural dysfunction, internalizing the idea that there's something wrong with me uh, because I'm sensitive and that's not valued in our culture. I would, um, I would say too that within the framework of 
the highly sensitive person, you know, I'll capitalize through Dr. Elaine Aaron's um, framework of this. She says that about 25 or 20% of any population, including animals, are HSP. So that means that Mm -hmm. 80% of the population is not (laughs) and doesn't quite understand. Yeah, and I'm also left handed. Mm. (laughs) So I have a lot of experience in like, uh, oh, geez, this is everything is backwards for me. Let me try to figure out how to flip it and make it Mm -hmm. um, functional for my system. Um, So, well, what if I take the left handedness analogy, what's interesting is my dad was left handed. My daughter's also left handed. And my dad was really fierce about educating me as a kid that the world is made of tools made for right handed people and ways of writing and doing things that are oriented around a, a right handed perspective. And I didn't have to follow that, uh, including doing check marks the left handed way, which everyone calls the wrong way. Right. <laughs> so, I I did have an experience of someone seeing a certain trait in me and nurturing that because my dad also had the same experience. But when it comes to high sensitivity and um, being an empath, uh, and actually I have an excellent article about being sick of people like me on my blog that sensitive folks and empaths might like. I'll send you the link, Amber. Uh, No one growing up, that wasn't a thing. No one understood that high sensitivity is actually a thing. Uh, Everyone understood it as oversensitivity and being too sensitive. Yeah, so can I clarify right now for anyone who doesn't know, this doesn't mean that you cry a lot, although a lot of HSPs do (laughs) cry a lot. It literally means that your nervous system is more sensitive to sensory stimuli coming at you from the world. Yeah, yeah. That's a good clarification. It's important. And um, and then as an empath, as, as well, being really tuned in to people's emotional lives and inner lives without verbal them verbalizing it, um, it can be very crazy-making. So I, I had no clue about those things growing up because no one around me knew. So I just always felt like I was overwhelmed. And I was constantly being told I was too sensitive when I was noticing things and bringing them up. Like your... Um, ghost grandpa fiddling for you well luckily my mom didn't actually say I was too sensitive about that she believed it but in other ways um often uh, what I found was I was noticing what's beneath the surface that everyone else was invested in denying and Mm -hmm. so it was never welcome my observations were uh, not welcome Mm -hmm. because it was kind of popping the bubble (laughs) Mm -hmm. you know and so so I really learned how to isolate myself and, and um, deal with overwhelm by isolating myself, which I think is a classic strategy. And <clears throat> it wasn't until I started my own healing journey and became a body worker and just started reading a lot and getting into, my dad got into meditation a few years before he died and I believe took his Buddhist vows with Thich Nhat Hanh. Um, and so I was always reading his books whenever I was at my parents' home. And the combination of just learning more about energetic systems and chakras and uh, meditation and Buddhism and all of these unseen um, forces and fields, started. I started to learn on my own that, oh, I'm actually not 
there's not something wrong with me. I'm just a very highly sensitive person. And, and understanding about being an empath actually came even later, just in the last five years, because I just never heard much about it. Um, I knew I could feel and be tuned into a lot of things, but no one else I knew really talked about it. So I didn't, it was just something I didn't talk about. Um, having said that, the biggest blessing uh, has been learning what being an empath and highly sensitive person means because now I can take care of myself <laughs> and I don't have to think there's something wrong with me. Mm -hmm. I can think of it as a gift instead, right? Yeah. Everyone I've talked to who has come across those concepts, um, who is those things, they're, they're separate things, being an empath and being an HSP. I think you defined it really well, but often overlapping, often present mm -hmm. in the same person. Um, for myself and everyone else I've talked to, it's completely life-changing to suddenly mm -hmm. have that framework. I'd be like, that's me. I'm okay. <laughs> oh, this is normal. This is like genetic. I was born like this. It's a gift. I can take care of myself. Yeah. And there's times when I still don't think it's a gift, you know, when I really want to be social and out having fun with whoever. And, and I can feel my system is starting to short circuit. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm like, if I push myself, I'm not going to have fun. I really want to go out and go dancing and have fun. But I, I know I can feel the subtle signs now of when I have to shut things down and retreat. But that's very different from overwhelm and self-isolating all the time. But, mm -hmm. you know, sometimes I get a little grumpy like, oh, I wish I could just be a little more extroverted and uh, able to handle all the things I'm feeling. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, because it takes a lot of time um, for me, at least if I'm going to be social, going to be out in any, even just running errands. Um, I have to recover afterward. And then that takes time out of my day, you know, yeah, like I have yeah. to take a bath and Epsom salts and body oil right now to feel grounded again. And yeah, <laughs> it's just, you kind of got to plan your life differently. Yes, exactly. And I mean, sometimes I'm my own worst enemy. I know that getting regular exercise and meditating just 10 minutes a day will keep me steadier and more able to be out in the world. But I don't. <coughs> I don't usually do that until I start feeling bad. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, no. Um, you know. And you mentioned, too, doing, like, getting craniosacral and body work. And you said, I need a lot oh, of yeah. self-care okay. to be connected to my deep self. And, yes. I mean, for me, that was so normalizing, too, because I've always needed a lot of body work. Even when I'm so broke, I'm like, I don't care. I'm spending my last... 60 bucks on this body work because I absolutely need it. Mm -hmm. And I would add to that. Um, it's really important to find a body worker who is tuned in and able to be present. Um, I think for everyone, but especially highly sensitive empaths, it's so important to get to make a good decision about your body worker. And if possible, I highly recommend um, somatic experiencing, people trained in somatic experiencing, which is nervous system healing for trauma, mm. uh, and also um, biodynamic craniosacral therapy. Yeah, I wanted which, to ask you, what is that? Yeah, so it's very different than regular craniosacral therapy, and um, it's 
it's hard to describe, but it's brilliant. It's very much tuned into the idea of the practitioner being uh, a very present battery pack to support the body's innate healing ability to self-heal. It's very gentle and subtle, and it's particularly oriented around healing the nervous system. And so what I've noticed in my clients as well as myself, and I actually I integrate a lot of this into my personal myth-making course, nervous system um, calming and settling uh, trauma-informed type embodiment prompts because a lot of HSPs and empaths are attracted to my work, but also because when you're highly sensitive, when your nervous system is already, um, uh, what's the right word, on alert or tuned in, tuned in a little more intensely to what's going on, it takes less stimuli to send the nervous system into a trauma response that gets stuck. And, and so when I say trauma, there's the big, big traumas everyone knows about sexual abuse and car accidents and stuff like that. But there's also the smaller traumas that can tip your nervous system over the edge if it's already stressed, like uh, a very sharp noise when you're not ready for it, or a small fall or tumble or being tackled by your child when you're so immersed in something else that you're just startled beyond belief. These small things can also pitch the nervous system into a trauma reaction. And then what really happens a lot for highly sensitive people, especially when you grow up not knowing that you're highly sensitive, um, many highly sensitive people learn how to uh, override their nervous system response and shut themselves down and numb themselves in order to function. And what that does is it, it uh, puts you often into a free state. So the um, trauma response doesn't get a chance to discharge, so it just holds on and keeps building. So for all of these reasons, um, body work and healing work that starts to support the nervous system in releasing trauma, releasing that overcharged feeling, and I, um, I often I'll feel it as a, an internal vibration that is not in sync with the rest of me, um, and and. Uh, I start to get more overreactive and irritable as it starts to build um, or just start to shut down to try to cope and retreat. None of these are normal conditions and situations. It means that your sensitive nervous system is, um, is stuck. So that's why I really recommend somatic experiencing and biodynamic craniosacral therapy. And if you can find someone who does both, well, you're just the most blessed person in the world. I just found a practitioner in town who's trained in both of those um, modalities, and it's, it's helping so much. And the really neat thing about committing to doing a process like that when you're a really sensitive person is um, what you start to learn is that parts of yourself that you think are due to high sensitivity are actually not. They're just um, chronic uh, trauma responses that can actually change. And then you get, as you release those layers, you get to discover, oh, my high sensitivity is really nuanced and is actually kind of pleasurable and enjoyable because I'm not stuck in these coping strategies that I thought were also about my high sensitivity. Wow, that is a really useful framing for me. 
Thank mm-hmm. you. Thank you so much. Um, okay. So we're going to close, but I just, I had written this thing down that you had written to me and it's not even really a question. I just want to read this sentence that you wrote because I love this idea so much. Um, we were talking about ancestral connections and you said I'd like to explore more about fiber arts adornment and symbolism in clothing from all of these lineages and create my own mythological regalia (laughs) but I just like that idea just sends me over the moon thinking about how amazing of a project that would be how beautiful that would be (laughs) yeah Yeah. oh I forgot I wrote that down (laughs) So um, one of the thing, one of the things that gets really forgotten because we're such a um, text-based culture. Uh, I know Darla Antoine was on talking about food and culture. Um, is is uh, textiles and fiber arts and music and dance and the more ephemeral cultural transmissions, including patterning. Um, and patterning actually having symbolism and language in it, in, in knitting, in weaving, in textile arts, um, but also dance moves and musical phrasing. There's so much richness to culture that we actually lose when we only focus on um, what can be written down. And so my idea about the regalia is it's quite amazing to look at historic photos of traditional cultural garb. And the ornateness and the incredible care that's put into, um, you know, what often gets called craft or women's work, but actually is cultural storytelling and transmission. And that's why I want to find a way to weave all of these different ancestral threads into some sort of regalia for myself. Mm, I love it. I love, I love clothing. Um, <laughs> and just really like the idea of this and again it's bringing up for me what um dr lynn kelly writes about writes about um symbols in this book which is that they were often also a memory code um especially Mm -hmm. you know symbols that don't clearly represent anything in the real world that are totally um you know what's that word um you know have no direct correlation that's clear to anyone who looks at it abstract Mm -hmm. um that they you know they had specific meaning within that culture and that they were also memory devices and i'm sure that that was you know it was included in pottery in ancient Mm -hmm. times and i'm sure it was also included in clothing basketry and all these fibers that disintegrate over time and that we don't have access to anymore yeah um okay well thank you for putting that beautiful idea in my mind and (laughs) Yeah, so just tell people where they can find you, your podcast, and how they can sign up to take your personal myth-making writing course. Yeah, so um, you can find everything I do on my personal website. It's JanelleHardy.com. That's J-A-N-E-L-L-E-H-A-R-D-Y.com. Um, uh, my personal myth-making course I offer twice a year, once in the beginning of February and once at the end of August. Those are the starting dates. Um, I also offer a free Outline Your Memoir workshop. It's a two-hour workshop, which gives you a really good taste of my style of teaching and is a great way to 
get a feel for my work and then step into personal mythmaking or to get a feel for my work and get started on your own personal mythmaking. And we use fairy tales in that workshop. It's really fun. Um, I also offer a uh, writing retreat. I've got one coming up in October, an in-person five-night writing retreat, which will be on my website. And um, my podcast is also on my website. And I will, I would love to have you listen in. Thank you, Amber, for your um, invitation to share my work. Yeah, thank you so much for um, for interviewing me yesterday on your podcast. It was so fun. And, yeah. and thank you for getting deeper with me today. Thank you for taking these medicine stories in. I hope they inspire you to keep walking the mythic path of your own unfolding self. I love sharing information and will always put any relevant links in the show notes. You can find my blog, handmade herbal medicines, past podcast episodes, and a lot more at mythicmedicine.love. While you're there, I invite you to click the purple banner across the top of the page to take my quiz, which healing herb is your plant familiar? It's a fun and lighthearted quiz, but the results are really in-depth and designed to bring you into closer alignment with the medicine that you are in need of. If you love the show, please consider supporting my work at patreon.com slash medicine stories. There's some killer rewards there, um, exclusive content, access to online courses, free, beautiful, downloadable ebooks, coupon codes, giveaways, and just amazing gifts provided by past guests of the podcast. All of that stuff is at the $2 a month level. Um, for a little more, you can access my herbal ebook or my small online course. And that's all there as a thank you, a huge thank you from me and from my guests for listening, for supporting this work. I love figuring out what I can give to people on Patreon. It's so fun. And I love that Patreon makes it that you can um, contribute for such a small amount a month. I'm a crazy busy and overwhelmed mom and adding this project into my life has been a questionable move for sure, but I love doing it and I love the feedback that I get from you all. And I just pray that the Patreon continues to allow me the financial wiggle room to keep on doing it while giving back to everyone who's listening. Um, if you're unable to do that, or if you'd like to support further, I would love it if you would subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you would review the podcast on iTunes too, really helps get it into other ears and it means so much to me when I read those reviews. It's um, like the highlight of my week when I check them and see new ones. And people are amazing. You guys are wonderful. Thank you so much. The music that opens and closes the show is by Marie Sue, M-A-R-I-E-E-S-I-O-U-X. It's from her song Wild Eyes, which is one of my favorite songs of all time. Thank you so much. And I look forward to next time.